Amen. If you would remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We have made it through the 8th chapter of Luke. We have made it a third of the way through this great gospel. And now we are starting on chapter 9. Reading Luke 9, verses 1 through 17. A couple of familiar passages this morning. So Luke 9, verses 1 through 17. We're reading from the English Standard Version. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there you will depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had, been, who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are going to buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, Twelve baskets of broken pieces. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated. And as you do, please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and honoring in your sight. O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name alone that we pray. Amen. Well, as you well know, it is a holiday weekend. We celebrated the 4th of July uh, just this past week. I'm sure most of you went to see fireworks, maybe had a barbecue, enjoyed, as Scott said, the beautiful weather that we've been having over the last several days. It's been gorgeous. Um, Stephanie and I were in Tennessee this past week for a little while, and I'm a little bummed to know that it was so gorgeous here. (laughs) 
because uh, we were hoping to escape some of the humidity. Uh, but when we got back, uh, it was. It was gorgeous here. Now if we could just escape some of the mosquitoes, that would be awesome. Um, but um, as you know, the 4th of July is when we celebrate our independence. Uh, we celebrate the freedoms that we have in, uh, in this nation. And we look back on that time in our history. Uh, we especially look at some of our founding fathers back then and their faith that they had. Many of them were believers. Many of them were Christians. They um, founded this country on Christian principles, um, on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But a, a prevailing theology during that time that many of them also believed was one of deism. And I'm sure that many of you have heard of this, this theology of deism. And it's often described as God being this, um, this, this being who is like a great watchmaker, is the classic analogy, who has created this, this watch, and then once the watch is created, he, he lets it run. And so they believe that God has created this world, and He has made everything in it, but then He has simply taken His hands off and let it run. He is a God who is not close by. He is a God who simply sets the world in motion and watches to see what's happening. He isn't concerned with the day-to-day affairs of men. Instead, according to deism, God is one who is distant. We don't have a real relationship with Him. Uh, some of our founding fathers uh, took the Bible and they, they took out some of the miracles. In fact, maybe all of the miracles in it. They would look at this story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and they would try to explain it some other way, um, some natural way. But this is not the God that we serve. We do not serve a deistic God, uh, a God of deism. Instead, we serve a God who is near. We serve a God who is with us, who is concerned about our daily needs. In fact, we serve a God who provides for us. This morning, we're going to see that Jesus provides what we need when we need it. And therefore, we should trust in Him. So first of all, we're going to look at Jesus providing for His disciples. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the fact that Jesus has saved us from our sins, and He has saved us to a mission. He has done this with His disciples. Uh, we saw that with the man who is saved from uh, being possessed by demons a couple of weeks ago. We see that Jesus saved him from this demon possession and he saved him to a mission to go back and to tell everyone what Jesus had done for him. When Jesus called the twelve disciples, he called them and he designated them as apostles. This is a very key word because to be an apostle means to be one who is on a mission. It means to be one who is sent. Not just a follower, but one who has been sent it has the connotation of being sent out as one who has a message to share with others. These were the disciples. They were apostles. So he didn't just call 12 men to follow him for a couple of years and then be done. He called them to be messengers of the gospel. He was training them. This was a training program. They got to be with Jesus so that he could send them out. 
And as every good training program has, he gave them an opportunity to test their knowledge, to test their skills, to test the things that they had been learning. In reality, he gave them an internship. So he takes them and he sends them out on this internship to see what they had been learning, to see, uh, to test what they had been um, gleaning from Jesus. And he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So he gave them a twofold task. He gave them the, the ability to proclaim the kingdom and to heal. And he says, don't take anything for your journey. He says, trust in me and rely on the kindness of others. Don't take food, don't take money, don't take a a change of clothing. Just go. Just trust in me and trust in the kindness of others. If people take you in, great. Stay there for a while and then move on. If people don't take you in, then shake off the dust off your sandals and move on. It's not a curse necessarily, Uh, but more of a public shaming. In a sense, a a shame on you for not bringing in these disciples. So this is what they did. They went and they were preaching the good news of the kingdom of God and they were healing. It's amazing. And apparently they were having success because Herod heard about it and he heard about what Jesus was doing and he was perplexed. He couldn't figure out what was going on. Some people were telling him that John had been raised from the dead. He he knew that that couldn't be the case because he had beheaded John. Maybe a prophet of old was uh, resurrected. Whatever was going on, uh, Herod knew that he wanted to see this Jesus. Who was this amazing man? And what were these disciples of his doing And so when the apostles came back, they told Jesus all that had happened. I would have loved to be there when these apostles came back. I'm sure they were just on cloud nine. Um, If you've ever had that experience of going on a mission trip or uh, maybe even going overseas and coming back, you have this, in a sense, this mountaintop experience and you're just so excited. I'm sure that the apostles were, were were having the same feelings. They were sharing with Jesus the amazing stories of what God had been doing through them and in them. But they didn't do these amazing things on their own. They didn't preach the gospel and they didn't heal by their own strength or by their own authority. Because as verse 1 tells us, when Jesus sent them out, He didn't send them empty-handed. He gave them power and authority. In reality, what He did was He gave them the Holy Spirit. He didn't send them out by themselves. Instead, He provided for them. He gave them the very thing that they needed. And it wasn't food. It wasn't money. It wasn't an extra pair of clothes. It wasn't a roof over their head. He gave them power and authority to preach and to heal. He gave them exactly what they needed and when they needed it. Now, we're on a mission as well. We've been talking about that for several weeks. When God saves us from, He saves us to. And we are on a mission. We are like the apostles. We are like little a apostles. 
We are also on a mission. We are being sent out by God. We are witnesses of Christ and what He has done for us in our lives. And we are not sent out empty-handed either. Acts 1 verse 8 says, and this is Jesus right before He ascends back into heaven, the last words He says to His disciples, He says, but you will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And this is the power that we have today in our lives to be witnesses for Christ. This power of the Holy Spirit. As we march through Luke later on in chapter 12, we're going to see Jesus encouraging His disciples that the Holy Spirit will give them the words to say when they need it. And the same is true for us. As we proclaim the good news of the Gospel of the Kingdom of God, God doesn't sit idly by waiting to see what we will do. He is with us through the power of His Holy Spirit. So not only did Jesus provide for His disciples, He also provided for the 5,000. Now this is a very familiar story. In fact, this is one of two miracles in all the Gospels that are recorded in all four. The other one is the resurrection. So this is how... This is how amazing and how important this miracle is. Because each one of the four Gospel writers records it. And I'm sure that you've heard it before. It wasn't just 5,000. That was 5,000 men. So in terms of women and children, we're talking about several more thousand here. This is an incredible miracle that Jesus performs with just five loaves and two fish. It's amazing. So there's this large crowd. They're following Jesus. They're in a remote place. It's getting late in the day. The disciples, they want to disperse the crowd. But Jesus says if He was a southerner, He'd say, y'all feed them. (laughs) Don't send them out. I want y'all to feed them. But they're like, impossible. We can't do that. All we have is five loaves and a couple of fish. But Jesus takes these loaves. He takes these fish. He blesses them. And he just starts breaking them off. And for 5,000 men, plus the women and children, he feeds them from these five loaves and these two fish. And in the end, as they're collecting everything, all the things that are left over, there are 12 baskets full. It's one for each of the disciples who said, this is impossible. But with God, we know that nothing is impossible. Jesus provided what was needed exactly when it was needed. To the hungry crowd, He provided enough food for them to eat and be satisfied. To the disciples, He was giving them more and more proof that He was who He said He was. We've been talking about the fact that the miracles prove Jesus' identity. Jesus can calm a storm. Because He created the world. He can heal diseases. He can cast out demons. He can even provide food when there is none. Even though they had just returned from their internship, so to speak, they still needed to be reminded of who Jesus was. And this miracle was the perfect opportunity to reveal to the disciples more and more of who 
Jesus really was. He's the great provider as well. Now, if you look throughout history, the history of salvation, we know that this isn't the first time that God has provided like this. As His people were exiting Egypt, as they were wandering through the wilderness, heading to the promised land, they started to grumble because they had no food. And what did God do? Every day, except on the Sabbath, He provided manna for them. Manna from heaven. They could go out and they collected it. He provided um, quail and meat for them as well. Uh, When they ran out of water, He provided water from the rock. Later on in Israel's history, God sent a drought on the land of Israel. But His prophet Elijah, He fed by ravens. Elijah was by a brook and God sent him ravens in the morning to bring him bread and meat and ravens in the evening to bring him more bread and more meat. God is the great provider. He provides what we need and when we need it. Now notice, God does not provide what we want when we want it. That is not how God works. As a parent, you know that sometimes the worst thing that you can do for your child is to give them what they want when they want it. Uh, My kids would love it if they could eat chips and drink Sprite all day long. Um, But that's not what we do. We feed them fruits. We feed them vegetables. uh, We feed them food that will help them grow. Because it's not about getting what they want when they want it. We do this because... We know more than they do. We know the importance of eating healthy. We know what is good for them in the long run, and we know what will harm them. God knows the same for us. Because even when we are disciplined, it is for our benefit. Whenever we load the dishwasher at our house, Abigail is at a place right now where she has started to walk. So we can't just set her in one place. Now she is doing that cute little toddle all over the place. And whenever we we drop down the dishwasher and start loading it up, she walks over to it and she likes to play with the dishes there. And as most dishwashers have, the, the place for the silverware is right up front. And usually what she does is she tries to reach out for that and sometimes we have sharp knives in there. And that's dangerous for a little child. And so we have to reprimand her and say, Abigail, you may not do that. And if she continues, then, unfortunately, she gets a pop on the hand. But she knows then, okay, I can't reach that. Does she cry? Of course she does. Does she understand why we would do that at this point? No, she doesn't. But we know, as her parents, it's not good for a one-year-old to be carrying around a knife. That's very dangerous. The same is true with us and God. He knows what is good for us. We may not always understand what is going on, but God is working for our benefit. Because God's knowledge is so far above our own. So far above. I came across a quote this past week by Tim Keller. He said, We can be sure our prayers are answered precisely in the way we would want them to be answered if we knew everything that God knows. If we knew everything that God knows, then our prayers would be answered precisely how we would pray them. Because we would pray in the way that God would pray. 
we would have our desires be God's desires. And the fact of the matter is, God knows so much more than we do. He knows infinitely more than we do. Back when I was in my early 20s, when I thought that I had life figured out, God turned my life on its head in one major way. When the girl that I thought that I was supposed to marry called off our wedding. At the time, I didn't see what was going on. I was angry and I was upset. I didn't know the point. All I saw was my present circumstances. But God knew what was to come. God saw the perfect wife for me. He saw four beautiful children. And I didn't see those things at the time. How could I, honestly? But in those times, God is calling us to trust in Him because He cares for us and knows what is best for us. He's providing what we need when we need it. And believing that God will do that, that He will provide what we need when we need it, requires faith. Having faith means that we believe that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. But having faith also means that we are willing to surrender the control of our lives and our circumstances over to the Lord. It means being willing to do hard things, putting ourselves in uncomfortable situations, maybe even dangerous situations, Trusting that God will provide our needs. I don't mean living carelessly or living recklessly, but living purposefully and living intentionally. Understanding that even the very basic actions, even our very basic decisions that we make are displaying our faith. They're displaying what we believe. Having faith means that we trust that God knows better than we do in all circumstances. It means trusting that God is working out all things for good, even when it seems like He is unduly punishing us, unduly disciplining us, like how Abigail feels when I stop her from reaching for a knife. But the reason that we know God loves us is this, that He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? As Paul says in Romans 8, verse 32. So the ultimate way that God has given us what we need is that He has given us Jesus. He has given us His Son. He has given us the bread of life. Because not only does Jesus provide for His disciples, not only does He provide for the 5,000, but He provides for us. The feeding of the 5,000 points forward to what we're about to celebrate this morning. And I love the way that God often orchestrates things like this. That we can read about the feeding of the 5,000 and how Jesus is our bread of life. And then we can celebrate that fact through communion this morning. And what I love about this miracle is that there is just layers and layers of understanding and of beauty to it. Because not only was Jesus providing for physical needs here, not only was He showing His disciples His power, 
proving to them that he was the Messiah, but he was also foreshadowing the sacrifice that he was going to make on the cross. And in John's account of feeding the 5,000, Jesus follows up the miracle by teaching the disciples that he is, in fact, the bread of life. In John 6, 35 and 48 through 51, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Imagine the disciples hearing that at that point. Jesus, what are you talking about? You will give your flesh. But Jesus gave the crowd pieces of bread and fish to satisfy their physical needs. Soon he was going to offer up his own body to satisfy their spiritual needs. And this is what we celebrate every time we gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because of our great sin, we have been separated from God. But through the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our sins have been paid for Because Jesus offered His body as the bread of life, we now have life through faith in Him. 